That did it. <laughs> oh, awesome. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we have a, a couple of guests uh, today, but, you know, what we've been doing for a period of time now is walking through what we call the heroes of faith of, uh, of the book of Hebrews. And so we've been looking through uh, the various characters of the Bible. First, we began with those that are outlined in the heroes of faith chapter of, of, of the book of Hebrews. Uh, but it quickly became something where we're like, well, this isn't quite listed, but this is a good guy to study. Uh, and so we've been essentially walking through uh, the large characters of, of, of Scripture and learning from their witness, right? We're learning from their testimony, their story, and see what they have to say to us today. And obviously, each character of the Bible is so dynamic. There's so many different ways that we can take them or take uh, uh, the females as well. And, and really, we just... We can only uh, we, we we go before the Lord and see what the Lord is is leading us in, uh, and so now we're we're on the uh, biblical hero of faith Isaiah, <clears throat> so that's where we're going to be um, speaking out of today. And obviously Isaiah is a very uh, large book, a lot of things going on in. But we uh, we're going to just focus on one uh, really particular passage, which is one of the more famous ones of the book of Isaiah, and that's Isaiah chapter six. And so <clears throat> what we have here. Something somewhat interesting. Uh, the person Isaiah, uh, his name itself, and even the book of Isaiah. Before we even get into the what we are learning in Isaiah chapter six, all foretells and depicts the message of the gospel in, in many regards. Uh, for example, if we can, uh, I believe, go to uh, the next slide if it is working. Um, the name, the person, the book, all depicts the message of God. For example, Isaiah in Hebrew is Yeshiahu. Uh, and Yeshahu means God is salvation or God saves. So right off the bat, you know, uh, ancient man or uh, Israelis today, when they're reading the book of Isaiah, they're proclaiming that God is the way of salvation, right? So just the name of the prophet himself foretells what's going on here in this, in this book, okay? Um, the person himself, Isaiah is born, right? Uh, and he's born in a very kind of tumultuous, crazy time. And his message is going to be one of part hope, uh, also one part despair, but also the foretelling of the Messiah. Um, and then the book itself. When I mean the book, I mean the way that it has come to be ordered is very, very interesting. If we go to the, the next slide here, we see some interesting parallels. So, for example, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. The first 39 chapters, if you read them, uh, are pretty like doom and gloom. It's judgment it is a judgment on an immoral people and an immoral nations of the world that they have been disobedient to the Lord. Uh, and then literally when you get to chapter 40, uh, the hinge changes. And the next 27 chapters declares a message of hope, a message of redemption. In fact, in those we see a lot of the messianic prophecies that are talked about, right? Uh, the humble servant which is going to come. Uh, he'll take on the chastisement of all of our wrongdoings, right? And, uh, as we know. Uh, and some of it gets really specific, such as the Messiah is coming to actually uh, bear a cross, if you will, uh, and to wear a crown, a crown of thorns. And all these things are, are mentioned in the last 27 chapters of Isaiah. And so what's interesting here is it's only the Lord. Like, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, there were men who divided up the scriptures in the way they did. But, you know, it's very interesting to see how this operates. Uh, next slide. What we see here is how the book itself is a telling. There are 39 books of the Old Testament, or as I like to say, the Older Testament, which many people 
you know, say it's the, the that's the half of the Bible that's doom and gloom. That's not necessarily true. There's plenty of grace and plenty of, of joy and goodness in it. Uh, but it talks about like the need for repentance and how mankind has gone astray. Just like the first 39 chapters of Isaiah does the same thing. And then the New Testament, strangely enough, has 27 books, just like the last 27 chapters of Isaiah are discussing and depicting um, the hope and redemption and the, and, and, and the Messiah himself. You put it all together, you get 66 books of the Bible and 66 chapters of Isaiah. And so you see the name, the person, the book itself is all in this uh, telling. I find that to be like really, really pretty cool and interesting. So getting into uh, Isaiah, the context of what's going on here is, um, you know, we began a couple weeks ago um, with, you know, the righteous king that comes forth, King David, about the uh, time 1000 B.C., and then we, we, we jumped over Solomon because we studied him not too long ago. And we started to focus on Elijah and Elisha, you know, the miracle working prophets and the call for repentance. And what's going to happen now is that there's a series, not all, but a series of mostly corrupt kings that have been coming along. And then about in the 8th century, in 700 BC, right, 700 years before the coming of Christ, uh, a message goes forth. Fourth, the message of Isaiah, which says in Isaiah chapter one, and then the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, uh, Yotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And so <clears throat> through the series of corrupt kings, now the prophet Elijah is sorry, the prophet Isaiah is called up and the spirit of God is going to come to him. Isaiah has about a 40-year career. This is all the context. Uh, and the end of his career is not so great. We don't have any proof, but the tradition is that he's actually sawn in two. And so we see that in the Heroes of Faith. Talks about, and some of you were even sawn in two as a martyr. And so tradition, both Jewish and Christian, uh, says that Isaiah was most likely sawn in two by one of the kings of Israel. It says, how dare you speak out against me? And boom. Pretty rough way to go, as Mario's like. It's all within this context, before the passing of Isaiah, that there is both political and social chaos in Israel. These Syrians have come in from the north. They've come in and they have uh, set up uh, the nation of Israel to be like a vassal state, which means like, all right, you have to serve the Assyrians, pay us taxes, do all this kind of stuff. Well, stay out of your affairs as long as you behave kind of thing for a period of time, and then it gets worse. But that's what's going on in the nation of Israel, and Isaiah is going to arise from the Spirit of God to speak forth prophecy uh, to the nation in the midst of its political and social chaos. Just like a little kind of like amen or show of hands. Would anyone say that, I don't know, like recently there's been some political and social chaos in our nation? Yeah, okay. So, right? Yeah, thanks. So you know, there, there, there's a lot going on here uh, in relationship to us. So let's turn to Isaiah 6. We'll slow down things a little bit. But since we were introducing Isaiah, you know, I wanted to give a little bit of a background to, to the book itself. Isaiah 6, um, many of us are probably uh, familiar with it. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord... Sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled, filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face. 
With two, he covered his feet. With two, he, uh, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongues of, uh, from the fire. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. And then there is a notion of judgment. Okay? So, break this down a little bit. We'll go to the next slide. What we have here is a, a bunch of different phrases or verbs that are being used. Uh, in Isaiah 6, what we see here in the telling of the story, Isaiah first saw something. His eyes were opened in the spirit uh, to see the throne room of God. He sees the angelic hosts. In fact, many scholars, at least Christian scholars, say that he may have, in fact, seen the Trinity. Because says, God says, who shall go for us, right? And even in your English translations, it's like usually a capital U, right? So Isaiah, in the 8th century, was able to see the throne room of God. And what does he see? He sees the seraphim, right? Rejoicing and declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? He sees this revelation. It's unbelievable what he sees. And then he has a natural response, which I imagine many of us, if we ever had a situation like this, like go to see in the spirit the throne room of God. Yes. His response is, I'm an unclean man. How can I be in your presence like this? It's a very reasonable charge, right? But what's so beautiful here is a touch occurs, right? The angel, or really the seraphim, takes a coal of fire, puts it upon his lips, and something really beautiful is said here. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is purged. Your sin is gone, man. But I'm unclean. Now your sin is gone now. Not because of something that you have done. But something that the heavenly host has done. You're clean. You're no longer unclean. You can stand in the presence of a holy God. And then he hears something. He hears something from the throne room, and it's the Lord. And the Lord says, all right, whom shall I send? Whom shall go for us? Who am I going to send out into the world to speak forth my prophetic message unto the nations? Who's going to do it? And Isaiah there, in the midst of a holy moment, has a holy response. I mean, a holy moment. He is seeing and is in the throne room of God. Like the holy of holies to the you know, nth degree. He's there and in this holy moment, there is a holy question and then there is a holy response. His response is, Hineni shalacheni. Here I am, send me. It's so beautiful because that phrase, here I am, has been uttered before. And it was uttered by Moses. God says, are you going to go, can you go to Egypt and can you do this? And Moses says, here I am. 
But if you guys know the story, Moses never really send, says, sends me. Like, send me, Lord. He's actually like, no, don't send me. He makes up all these excuses and all this kind of stuff. But when Isaiah comes in contact with the holiness of God, the throne room of God, he says, here I am, Lord, and I'm the one that wants to partake in that question. When we come in contact with holiness, our response is going to be one of not just that I'm here, but send me. Yes, Lord. Amen. I believe as I was studying this uh, this week, I felt like the Lord was just saying when the part of the purpose of having holy moments and holy encounters with God is to have a holy response with God. There's a lot of people in the church who cry out, who worship the Lord and have these moments of holiness, but their responses in their heart and in their life, nothing is different. I've seen I've seen it in my own life. There's an amazing encounter with the Lord. He does something amazing like Alan driving down the street the other day after men's breakfast and a, a tractor trailer like, like just, I can't even explain it. It just it broke and time just stood still and he was listening to a teachings about protection of, of how the Lord sends angels right in the midst of listening to a, a podcast about, about all that kind of stuff. He's sitting there like, oh, yeah, that's true. You know, the, the person was saying like, you, sh- you know, we, we don't get all focused on angels because that's angel worship. And that's not what we do. But it's also would be silly and stupid not to recognize that they have a play. That's it. And he's listening to this. And then this truck like breaks apart and going 70 miles per hour. I'm like, Ask them to Unbelievable. <laughs> holy moments that we have with God, I believe, should produce a holy response. Not just here I am, but have your way with me. You're Lord, right? Let me, let, let me be used by you and for you. And if I can have a, another battery, if Mary you can get it, because, you know, this is the day of all technology. <laughs> you probably can actually hear me. I've got to get my teacher voice back. Two weeks, I'll be teaching a bunch of 30... You know, 30 knucklehead high school students. All right, cool. I'm just going to talk like this because it's much more natural than holding something, right? All right, just let me know if you're like, I can't hear you. So, <clears throat> holy moments should produce these holy responses, right? And so what happens here is Isaiah, and I can be all Italian, although I'm not Italian, right? I use my hands. What we have here is this response of here I am, send me, Lord. Uh, and so what happens here is essentially Isaiah's response is going to come. It's right on the front, front, front there. Um, his response to the Lord is going to come from actually from hearing, from seeing, from recognizing, from having an encounter with a holy God. Okay? <clears throat> and he's sent out to preach forth a message of repentance, essentially. Um, and so let's, uh, let's, let's bring this together into the New Testament a little bit. Uh, Romans chapter 10, um, verse 14. Really, actually, we'll begin in verse 13. Thanks, Mary. As you guys get sit up there, you know, um, Isaiah has this physical and emotional response to the Lord. And it produces a change inside of him. And he's going to go from just the son of Amos, this little guy, to a prophet. 
And so let's relate it to us a little bit here. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there it is, one of the various examples of what happens and how does one become saved, right? When you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And verse 14 says, And then, and how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how should they, shall they hear without a preacher? Someone who's going to instruct. It doesn't mean like a preacher, like someone up here at a, a podium. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And so what I'm trying to do here is trying to kind of get into this, this, this flow of what shall our response be when we see a holy God? When we go into the throne room in worship and in prayer, what's our response? Is our response, yes, Lord, send me to the nations. Lord, send me to my family. Send me to my community. Now, here's the thing. It's, it's not that like, difficult of a charge. Like, well, how do we advance the kingdom of God? It's very simple. It's right here. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, well, how do they do that? They do that when people hear the message. Well, how, how do people hear the message? Well, in plain English, well, when people go out and spread that message. Well, how do people go out and spread that message? Oh, people have to be sent. So what happens here is this, right? The Lord has sent us into the Great Commission to go and preach the, the gospel and to show the world him and show him and show the world the kingdom. All right, we go to the next slide here. I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I have a feeling that some of us, including myself, there are things that keep us from speaking forth the good news to people. We say, Lord, I'm here. Thank you. You saved me, but send me. I'm not an evangelist. I don't have the gifting of evangelism. Come on, let's be real. There are things that keep us from going forth in that message. Same thing that kept Isaiah bound up until he encountered holiness. Once he encountered a holy God, everything changed. So I'm making the argument that if we're not going forth with the message of Romans 10 and sharing the gospel with people, we may not, in fact, have had a holy moment. What keeps us from speaking forth the good news with people? Do we want to see the kingdom of heaven on earth as the Lord has called us to pray? Well, you can, you can close yourself up in your, in, your in your closet, in your room, and just pray all the time. And that has a lot of power in it and weight in it. But we need to go out and we need to proclaim the message. Right? That's the charge that he's given us. But I'm just being real with you. I know there are times where I'm like, oh, yeah, there's times when you get a little like, well, you, you know. So what keeps us from speaking forth the message of hope, love, repentance, reconciliation, fullness. All right, there's a couple of things. I'm sure we can come up with more, but these are the ones that the Lord kind of downloaded to me. Go to the next slide here. Now you see why I wanted the slides. There's a lot of uh, things going on. One, I, I think there's time. And I teach high school, so I'm just going to do what we're all doing already. Ready? Time, embarrassment, I don't know how. Good, we read them all. Now let's go back to the first one. Time. Let's just talk about time for a moment. Those are the three that we're going to talk about. Time. Look, a lot of us are busy. We're busy, busy, busy in good things, but not utterly most important things. Come on. Right? We're busy with work. We're busy in taking care of people. We're busy doing many times good things. 
Some of us are busy doing bad things, but we're not going to quite get into that. We'll get into that some other time, right? But we're busy, right? We're busy with good things. The Lord has blessed this country and us with so much goodness. I, I was told if, uh, if, if the devil can't make you evil, he'll make you busy. It's two strategies. Either you're lost and you're just like on your way to like crazy destruction, or you're saved and he just keeps you busy so you don't go forth with Romans 10 of proclaiming the gospel. And I think one of, the, one of the big things of the Western church is that we're busy. There's a lot of people in comparison to the rest of the world in this nation that are saved. There's a lot. Millions. But we're busy. We're really busy. And so one thing that keeps us from proclaiming it is, is the busyness. And so you know, I ask myself this question. I don't want to come off judgmental, but I'm sitting there preparing this stuff, praying before the Lord, worshiping down in my basement. And he, the Lord is like, yeah, we're going to deal with you first before you go to the congregation. I'm like, oh, you know, and then I go upstairs and the diapers have to be changed or something's happening. You know, it's like an emotional like roller coaster. You're like, <gasps> I walk up those steps and I'm like, all right, I just came out of the throne room of the Lord. I'm dealing with all this stuff. And now it's back to the busyness of life, right? So... <clears throat> Give that as a little caveat, but if we're so busy, we, we really have to ask the question, for what are we living for? Amen. Like, what, what are we doing, man? Building up our kingdoms, building up our homes, building up our prestige. What are you here for? The world says to be comfortable, to prolong your life as much as possible, to set up the next generation to make it better than, than you. There's some warrant to that, don't get me wrong. But if we're so busy doing those things which are earthly, how on earth are we going to do those things which are spiritual? And we all know that. I mean, that's nothing like, ooh, that's a big shocker there, Dave. I got you. Two, embarrassment. Well, I don't know how to proclaim the gospel. Uh, and I thought the Lord was just telling me uh, this, um, is that if you're embarrassed to proclaim the gospel, well, we have to, and I've been in situations, particularly at work, you know, I'm like, ooh. I just think if, if we really have a holy moment with the Lord in our life and you really encounter the love of the Lord and we really have a revelation of what's really happening. I, re I remember one thing that I, I read one day and I forget who said it, maybe, maybe Gary recalls this. But there was some guy who's, he, he was a philosopher, a thinker, an intellect. And he's like, look, if... And he, he was an atheist, and he was going to Christians, and he was, he was saying, like, if you, if you Christians really believed what you believed, like, you would be out everywhere proclaiming your message. Because if you look at me as an atheist, and you actually think, if you actually think that I would have spent eternity in hell's fire, I, I would imagine that you would be much more vocal about your message. There's an atheist talking to the Christians like, you really believe that there's people that are on earth that are eternally damned? Like, if you actually believe that, I think you probably would be a little bit more vocal about your message of love and restoration and salvation. Think about it. I mean, the people, I mean, I don't want to get like all completely doom and gloomy, but it's like, man, you're walking down the street. If you believe the message of, if you don't call upon the name of the Lord, that you don't have eternal life. We, we may be a little bit more motivated to, to, to share it in a loving way. So I think if we, it, it, that's the one thing, right? That's like the more the hell, hell fire and brimstone technique. But 
You know, there's also another side to that coin. There's probably even a better side. And that is when you come in contact with the love of the Lord. Like, when you fall in love with someone, like a, a spouse, and you get engaged, right? These people are, are getting engaged uh, just over the weekend, and they're plastering all over Facebook. And they're all over, like, I love this person so much, I just got to tell people about it, and I'm so excited. This is the wedding day, and this is what's going on. And they get so excited. Like, if we come in contact with the love of the Lord, like, we're, we're going to be, we should be, like, ecstatic about it. Or there's people that I met that are in recovery, NA, NA, um, NA and, and AA. Like, people that are really connected to it and they really came out of destruction, like, their whole life is all about NA and all about AA. And they're going around with t-shirts on and they're going out and they're telling people about it. They're completely evangelistic about the message of uh, Alcoholics or Narcotics Anonymous. And they're all fired up about it. It's like their whole life. Like, or, uh, Steve. Steve is uh, the maintenance guy here. Like, the guy's like every, like every moment he's talking about recovering and doing something about recovery. Like, recovery is his life. And it's crazy, you know, because that, that's kind of, you know, really how, how things should be for us. Uh, the third thing is, uh, I don't know how. Uh, and there is some, there, there's truth to this. Maybe people haven't been taught how to, how to share the gospel with people. Um, but I think if you've been around, you know, enough in the church, you've been around, you've been um, saved or made a decision to follow the Lord for a period of time, you, you've done this uh, enough that, that, that you've seen and you know how, how to somewhat share the gospel. I feel like the Lord was just telling me, like, the, the, the excuse of I don't know how is really just an extension of embarrassment. Like, I don't know how to do it, so if I do it wrong, what will someone think of me of how I've done it? It's kind of an extension of embarrassment. And so all of this brings us back to Isaiah. Because Isaiah is being called out to be an evangelist for his nation and for his generation. He sees the throne room of God. He is touched by the heavenly realm. Literally with a coal. And also spiritually in his spirit. Like he sees this and he sees that his sins have been purged. And so I'm kind of wondering if we're not as vocal in the Romans 10 message of going out and sharing the gospel. I'm not saying forcing it down people's throat. I mean, I think you guys mostly know me enough. But like sharing the love of the Lord with people and being vocal and in people's lives to do that. I wonder if, if we haven't had a true revelation of the Son of Man. Have we really had a revelation of the gospel in our hearts? Have we really seen the Lord? In prayer and in worship. Because Isaiah sees him in prayer and worship. And his life is completely changed. His life is completely marked. Where he says, here I am, send me. I want to go forth. And so in my own life, I want to see the message of Romans 10 to go forth and proclaim the gospel. Not just from a, in a safe place like this, but out in the world. How do I get mobilized to do that? I have to come in contact and have holy moments with the Lord. And if I really have holy moments with the Lord, in prayer and in worship, quiet time, reading the Word, if I really have these holy moments, my life is going to be marked to proclaim a gospel message. And so I'm just wondering in my life, because it's me too, and your lives, if you are or not, if we're not as open to share the gospel because of our time, because of the feeling of I don't know how, or the embarrassment, what kind of encounter have you had in the throne room of the Lord?
I just think if we see the beauty of salvation, if we really pause and see the beauty of salvation, man, we're going to be like engaged to the Lord, you know, like, ah, I got to tell people. I think there's also a, another one that may kind of plague its way into this. Uh, and go to the, the next slide. Uh, and that is um, the fourth one of I'm not worthy of it. Like, I got too much mess in my life. I got too much sin. I'm too broken. My past is a mess. I can't speak well. No one's going to take me seriously. I can't even take myself seriously. What's amazing here is this is exactly what Isaiah is saying. No, I am unclean. But what's so beautiful here is just like Isaiah, the Lord comes to us and cleanses us. Says, no, you're right. You're not worthy. But I've made you worthy, Isaiah. I've made you worthy, someone in the 21st century, because of the blood of Jesus. Because the Spirit of God that's dwelling inside of you. You're worthy to proclaim the message of the gospel. In fact, your brokenness, your weaknesses, your past may in fact be the strongest witness of the gospel. Look, I've never struggled with alcohol. How do I go with someone who is an alcoholic and tell them about the gospel message? I can. But one of my brothers or sisters in the Lord who have struggled with that can proclaim the gospel with more authenticity and maybe in many ways more power than I could because I haven't walked through that. Your weakness. When I'm weak, he is strong. We go to our moral failures of our past and it is the the, the most powerful fuel to the spreading of the gospel. If you're not worthy, no kidding, none of us are, but his blood has made us worthy. Your past is your strongest, strongest fuel for this. We go to the next slide. Um, this brought me to something called Kintsukuri, or Koroi. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Japanese. So, uh, it's referred to as Kintsukuri, uh, or Kintsugi, and I'm going to use Kintsugi because that seems to be a lot easier to say in Japanese. Uh, Kintsugi is this unbelievable, beautiful process of Japanese uh, philosophy. Not theology, philosophy, studying of knowledge, love of knowledge. To repair with gold, the art of repairing pottery with gold or silver lacquer, and understanding that the piece is more beautiful for having been broken. In Japanese thought, if someone breaks a piece of pottery, they don't throw it in the trash and go to Ikea and buy a new one. What they'll do is they'll take the broken vessel They will sit down. They will paint it, or rather lacquer it, using a glue mixed with gold and silver. And they'll glue the pieces back together. And now it has become an art form. They place it on their mantle, and they use it, and now that broken vessel is worth much, much more. Instead of hiding the weaknesses, they show it off. And say that it's even more beautiful because it has become broken. What a testimony of the power of the gospel. And Sharon, if we can go to the video, I want to show you like someone actually doing this. And Marion, when that video is done, you can come on down. And if you put the volume up, that'd be cool.
keep an eye on the countries which they so a plate from North Korea a plate from South Korea Pakistan and India because you can't read it Turkey and Armenia sure if many of you are history buffs or if you could read the, the, the countries. But what they did with this particular form is they took pottery from different countries that are warring with one another. South Korea, North Korea, uh, India and Pakistan, who both have nuclear weapons, very scary stuff. They're both fighting over an area called Kashmir. Some people think that's, that could erupt into World War III. Turkey, Armenia, uh, 1914, the Turks committed the uh, Armenian genocide, killed between one and two million Armenians that not even many history classes even teach about. Uh, it's a precursor to uh, the Jewish Holocaust. Adolf Hitler actually said, ah, no one paid attention to the Armenians. Surely no one will pay attention to our destruction of the Jews. But you see, what they did here as an art form, they said, all right, these broken societies, the broken pottery shards, we're going to bring them together with the golden lacquer and show them off of how we can come together. I think it's such a beautiful testament of the gospel. Not gold and silver lacquer, but rather the blood of Jesus. If you go to someone in this kind of kintsugi, look, man, I'm a real book. I have problems. I've had problems in the past. I'm not going to hide behind them. It's real. It's real. But Jesus fixed me. There's power that is released in that. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power to set men free. Go to the next slide. There is no greater power of the restoration of this country, the restoration of communities, than the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus makes us all red in the blood of Jesus. And white as snow in terms of our purity before him. There's no race and there's no racial division in the kingdom of God. So maybe in this country, in the south, with everything going on, the white supremacists and the Antifa and all that kind of stuff, you know, the enemy's trying to put a wedge between, between, between people. 2,000 years ago, it was, ah, you're a Greek and you're a Jew. What does Paul say? It's neither Jew nor Greek. Neither free nor slave. We're all one in Jesus or not. And so when there's broken times that come ahead in our own nation, other places, the only thing that's going to bind us together is the blood of Jesus. And when we show people communities of unity between races, unity of different socioeconomic backgrounds, it shall speak forth in power. 
And so we say we're not worthy or we're not good enough. We go to the next slide because I really don't want to have that behind me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and closing up, verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Addressing this notion of worthiness, we have to change our paradigm. But even in the eyes of the world, I'm not that worthy. I know, no kidding. Actually, Paul was talking about it. Look at you, he says. Not many of you are wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. He's actually speaking to those people that are weaker in society, that maybe not have a lot of money, don't have a lot of education. He's like, look, the Holy Spirit has chosen you. Why? Because we want to show the glory of God in you to change society by using the weakest people in society. So when we say that we're not worthy or we don't feel like we have the abilities, it's really because that's who God likes to use. So that no flesh shall glory in his own. John, James, and Andrew, they're all fishermen with limited education. Matthew was a tax collector who was hated. Tax collector, people that took money from you. They didn't just take money and give it to Caesar. They took money from you and gave it to Caesar and also gave a little extra tax and lined their own pocket. Peter, a fisherman, limited education, even cuts the ear off of a Roman soldier, denies Jesus three times. Yet he is found worthy enough because of the blood of Jesus. Paul the apostle, yeah, he was really highly educated, a religious teacher, but he was also an accomplice in the killing of Jewish believers. It says in the book of Acts, the guy was a part of a murdering campaign of new Christians. So if you think that your mess is messy, holy cow, right? The Lord loves to refine it all. And so, Lord, I just pray that we can have a holy moment with you. I don't even pray for holy responses yet. I pray that we here could come into a moment where we have to say, here I am, Lord. You're in our midst. I'm with you. Father, I pray that we would have holy encounters, spiritual encounters with you in prayer and in worship that would change our life, that we would stand and say, oh, this day I have been marked. This day my life is different. This day I came face to face with the revelation of the power of the gospel. I came face to face with the revelation of the love of Messiah. And my life has changed. I can never be quiet again because like Isaiah, I saw a holy God and now my heart responds in love and says, oh Lord, please send me to the nations. But let it begin with sending me to my sister and my brother and my husband and my wife and let it go forth into my community and my neighbors and, 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 and the people at work. 
But that holy response can only come from a holy moment with the holy God. Father, I pray against the busyness of idle time. The busyness of building up our own kingdoms. Father, I pray against embarrassment. Embarrassment. We have been redeemed by a holy God. Oh, and Father, I pray, I pray that our weaknesses, our past would not come to haunt us, but that would come to catapult us into the furthering of the kingdom. Oh, Lord, because there is power when we go before someone and say, I, I don't have a theology degree. But what I do know is I was blind, but now I can see. That's all I know. I know I was lame, but I now can walk. I know I was tempted beyond any human possibilities, but now I don't have temptation. Yes, I, I, I once was depressed. I once was an alcoholic, but now I'm free. And I don't even know what scripture to use from the Bible. All I have is my life. And my life says all I know is I was lost, but now I'm found. Father, I pray that spirit would be upon Bristol Hope. The spirit of the revelation, of the reconciliation, the redemption. That we can cry out like Isaiah and says, Lord, I was unclean, but my sins have been purged. So let me be free. Go forth the proclaiming of the gospel. Here we are, Lord. Send us. But let it come out of a holy moment and a holy revelation of your love for us and your love for the lost. Hmm. Jesus. Hmm. Why don't we why don't we just stand as the worship team just seals all this with a with a song and I'm praying a holy moment for us if, if there's anything that you, you would like and you would need prayer for in regards to what we were preaching or what I was preaching on or anything else please come down and we'll just, we'll just pray for you and stand with you we have coffee and, and food and refreshments downstairs if you'd like to join us you have just have a wonderful week, but I just encourage you. Don't worry, I'm not looking. No one's looking. I hope but I'm not looking. I, I, I just before you leave, I, I just I just pray that you just have a moment. Just have a moment with the Lord. Just say, you know what? Why, why do I? If this is you, why do I not share the gospel? Why are why are your praises not on my lips the way that the Bible says they should be? What's going on? And just meditate on Him and His goodness over you. I just encourage you to do that. Because I want to bring forth the kingdom. It's the Lord's heart to bring forth His kingdom. He gave His charge over it. It says in the scriptures, the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to men. Yeah, Pastor Ron? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Hallelujah. I just want to encourage you all. Um, once you experience that holy moment, you'll be able to share with others your story. And I just recently experienced 
the tugging of the Holy Spirit to for me to witness to some of my co-workers. And I said uh, to myself, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. I don't know how to start a conversation. And the Lord said, I will start it for you. And people start asking me about my kids and their names. And the Holy Spirit said, share the testimony I gave you about your kids' names. How you got their how, how I revealed to you their names. Mm. I said, Lord, okay. But he gave me opportunity to be able to share testimony, to be able to tell them what God has done in my life. And people can't deny that. They, they really won't deny it. Even if they do deny it, they're going to deny it more so on the inside versus uh, being vocal about how they don't believe it. Amen. So there's really no argument. You, you share your testimony. Share your moment, your holy moment. Amen. You don't have to have a sermon. Mm. Amen. You don't have to have all these scriptures. But share your holy moment. And God will give opportunity. I, I, I said, Lord, I just want an opportunity. I said, Lord, here I am. Send me. And it was like a bunch of nurses that stopped what they were doing to listen to my story. And they some of them said, I, I'm getting chills just from your story. Amen. Mm. And it was just the Lord showed me, I'm going to have you drop seed. I'm going to have you drop little nuggets here and there. And they're not going to forget it. And you're being an evangelist for me. You're sharing the gospel because you're telling them what I've done in your life. Sometimes we don't want to feel like we're being weird or hurt. You don't want to seem weird to somebody else because we just bring Jesus up out of nowhere. You don't have to bring him up out of anywhere. If you ask God for opportunity, he'll do so. And he'll even allow the conversation to go in a certain way so that you can't present the gospel. Amen. Amen. So I encourage you to experience that holy moment even right now. Amen. And ask the Lord to birth something um, out of you in the midst of that holy moment. Thanks, man. So, yeah, just feel free to do whatever the Lord is leading you to. Have a wonderful week, and we will see you downstairs or up here for prayer. Just bless you. We bless you in the love of the Lord. Have a wonderful week.